everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, November 2nd. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news between the two of us. We try to today, and we read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, we have a very special two-edition, two-podcast edition day for everyone today. Yeah, Mosh, you interviewed CNBC's Julia Borston. She just wrote this new book, When Women Lead. And it's really fascinating. In that interview, you asked her many questions, including why there are more women who are actually graduating from college now, and yet still so few who make it to the C-suite in so many of these companies, especially these tech companies. Her answer was really interesting. She says, in many ways, it's because a lot of women miss a mid-level promotion somewhere along the line, many cases because they're having kids. That hit home for me. Um, She also talks about the attributes that make women great leaders. Anywho, fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I I played a clip of her talking about Twitter in the Monday podcast. This is the full interview on the book. It's a great read. It's a great listen. So look out for that later today, folks. All right, Mosh, here are some of the headlines that we're following today. Quiet quitting, productivity paranoia, pay transparency. We're going to take a look at what is happening with the job market right now. Speaking of money, Mark Zuckerberg is poor. Just kidding. He's still worth about $38 billion, but his net worth was three times that last year. So we're going to tell you what's up with his dreams of a metaverse. And lurking behind the sun, NASA has discovered an asteroid so massive that it's being called a potential planet killer. So in case anyone was hoping for a nice, easy listen today, we do end with your chance to get rich, though. We, we do. There's another Powerball drawing, more than a billion dollars, so everyone go out and get their tickets. And by the way, I, you know, I, I won't hold anyone in suspense. The asteroid's not headed our way, at least not right now, but uh, we'll tell you about what NASA's finding lurking behind the sun. And uh, But it does come, Jill, <laughs> by, at a time where uh, NASA has been working on their technology to knock asteroids out of the way, which we can talk about too. We actually have a ton of space news, including some UFO info, so good yes. podcast today. All right, let's get to it. I started one of the podcasts last week saying, recession, what recession? And all right, Moshe, I'm going to say it again. Recession, what recession? 
The job market, at the very least, still humming right along. Some new data shows that the number of job openings increased in September to 10.7 million. That's up from 10.3 million in August, which means, according to your favorite economic reporter, Heather Long. Love her tweets. Love her tweets. Yes, that the uh, job market is very much still strong with no sign of a recession, at least when it comes to employment. Not all good news, though. Another key metric showed that that of the people who are working, they're a lot less productive than they used to be. What's going on there? We have this bizarro, I mean, Jill, you covered financial news for a long time. And typically the way it works in economics is like, this goes up, this goes down, this goes up, this goes down. And like, there's a calculation to these things. And really everything has been thrown out of whack since COVID, including some of these jobs numbers. People, you know, I got messages from people being like, how could there be more jobs given inflation, given that people are tightening up? It, one of the interesting things you just brought up is the productivity measure. Uh, and so there's more jobs maybe out there because people are less productive at their jobs. In the first half of 2022, there's a statistic that the Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps together. They measure how much output and goods and services an employee can produce in an hour. And apparently, according to their stats, it plunged by the sharpest rate on record going back to 1947. And so we've seen this plummeting of productivity. So people are employed, but they're doing less at work. Uh, I was listening to the, uh, Julie Pollock. She's a uh, labor economist at ZipRecruiter. And she points out that at the start of the pandemic, companies laid off about 20 million people in a matter of weeks. And so she believes, you know, everyone's trying to get to the bottom of this productivity issue. She thinks that people essentially respond to that by saying, you know what? I'm never going to care about a job as much as I did that job because they don't care about me. They'll just drop me if economic winds change. That's so interesting. That really is fascinating. It's just like, so it was a wake-up call for everybody about family, about jobs. And then you have like throw in long COVID for some folks, childcare issues for other folks, people working from home, which was initially super productive and not so productive anymore. Quiet quitting. There's a lot happening. About quiet quitting, Gallup finds that, quote, quiet quitters make up about 50% of the U.S. workforce, if you could believe it, probably more. It's going viral on social media, as you said. It's basically this idea that millions of people just not going above and beyond at work and just meeting their job description. So, Jill, that 50% stat has me thinking, which one of the two of us is the quiet quitter? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a great question. I, In some ways, I would hope not you, given that your name's the one on the masthead here. But <laughs> given that it's only two of us, I think we both need to do our part. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's most really doing? He's he's not putting an effort. Um, that is so funny. Okay. Um, why does this all matter, though? Why does productivity matter? In part, it goes back to inflation, which we talk about all the time. More productivity means that more goods and services are available at lower costs, and therefore there's less inflation. And it also helps to drive the standard of living. Okay, there's also this new thing called productivity paranoia. It's actually a term coined by Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, and it describes employers' paranoia that their employees aren't engaged and working hard enough. So it's basically employers paranoid about quiet quitters. (laughs) in a way. Um, So they've done things like trying to track their computers to see when they're actually working. Um, And here's where we are. It's it's crazy times when it comes to employment. It's crazy times with a lot of alliteration. So we have predictivity (laughs) paranoia on the part of the bosses about quiet quitting on the part of the employees. Um, And, you know, there's more jobs available than ever before. 
Um, and that comes at a point where we thought things were going to be tightening up. It will be interesting, Jill. You know, typically you do see a bunch of positions open up for the holidays. Yes, and it'll be interesting if they're if they fill them. Um, yeah. You know, if they're going to be able to fill them. Incidentally, Jill, starting uh, Tuesday in New York City, employers for the first time had to disclose salary information in job ads. That's a new pay transparency law that's really growing across the country. Uh, I heard from Coloradans that, you know, they were talking about how it's already been in place in Colorado for a while. Washington State and California will actually be implementing it in January. Again, the idea here is that full pay transparency uh, will shrink the gender and racial pay gaps. Uh, and so basically now you have job listings. If you're looking for a job in New York where it says this position and here's the salary range uh, we're offering for it. They're looking to have like full on transparency. What's interesting here is that it does mean that current employees for the first time are learning like how much their coworkers might be paid, getting paid for the same job. Uh, some companies have already been doing this. Uh, American Express, JP Morgan Chase, uh, Macy's have been adding pay bans to the help wanted ads. This is something that we'll probably be seeing growing across the country. Right now in New York, this applies to all companies with four or more employees. Um, and incidentally, uh, one of the things that you know people are curious about is these vast salary ranges. Like literally there are jobs that are posted there like anywhere between $85,000 and $210,000 a year. <laughs> so it's um, somewhat I'll helpful. I'll take the 210, <laughs> exactly, thanks. Exactly. Like it's somewhat helpful and in some cases you're just like, "Wait, how could this be?" You know, we mentioned quiet quitting or doing the bare minimum or workers who aren't productive. One reason could be that everyone's just on their phones on social media, including TikTok. And that leads us to our next story. The conversation in D.C. is now back to banning TikTok. Brendan Carr, one of five commissioners at the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, now calling for a ban on the TikTok app. He's calling on the Council on Foreign Investment in the U.S., also known as CFIUS, to take action because it, the FCC actually is not the group that would be able to ban TikTok. It comes amid ongoing negotiations that the group is having with the app about whether it can continue business in the U.S. if it is sold from Chinese parent company ByteDance to an American company. And it's the strongest language that an FCC commissioner has used to date to urge U.S. action on TikTok. With more than 200 million downloads in the U.S. alone, the app is becoming a form of critical information infrastructure. And that makes the app's ownership by a Chinese parent company a growing national security concern. Mosh, we were having this exact same conversation about two years ago. What happened? How did we get back here? Yeah, let's let's back up here because it seems familiar. It's like, well, did, did, we talked about banning TikTok. Yeah, so in fact, in uh, early to mid-2020, President Trump at the time ordered the app banished from the country within 45 days. He actually did it like via tweet from Air Force One. It was one of those where he's like, we need to ban TikTok. And everyone's like, uh, okay. He then changed his mind because some of his advisors said, listen, polling out there, it won't be popular for you to ban TikTok. You're going to lose a lot of young voters and maybe some parents. So then Trump backtracked on banning TikTok and said, instead, I want TikTok to sell part of it that deals with America to an American company. And he wanted the American government to get a, quote, very large cut of the sales proceeds. OK, so then they go to stage two where he where they begin these conversations about selling a part of the company to an American company. Initially, they're talking about Walmart buying TikTok, then Oracle, the tech company. Eventually, Trump, of course, loses the election and that gets then passed the Biden administration. Federal courts, by the way, eventually ruled that Trump's order that was blocking TikTok or that forcing them to sell was actually illegal. So that all had to be rolled back by Biden. 
But then over the course of the past year now, we've seen a whole number of reports that have challenged TikTok's claims that like US user data is totally secure. Uh, and so TikTok has claimed they put our data for American users outside of China and the company doesn't comply with the Chinese government uh, content moderation requirements. But now we've seen multiple reports from BuzzFeed, from Forbes, talking about how Chinese-based engineers working at TikTok have been able to access non-public U.S. user information. We've also seen that ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, instructed employees to push pro-Beijing messaging to U.S. users of the app. Uh, they also, apparently there were, there were also additional reports in Forbes about collecting more user data. So now we're basically back to square one again, which is, should we ban it? Should we not ban it? And there's a larger conversation happening with the justice department, the Biden white house, ByteDance about how to keep TikTok going in America again, uh, by storing its data, selling parts of it, coming up to some sort of compromise that ensures that us user data on TikTok stays here in America. I want to talk a little bit more, as you you hit on it a bit, but about why officials are are so concerned here. So the Chinese government, not to state the obvious, does not have the same relationship to Chinese companies as the U.S. government does to U.S. companies, meaning the Chinese government and these Chinese companies in many ways are one in the same. I heard Brian Sullivan on CNBC saying that it's basically as if the Chinese government has a microphone and camera in every TikTok user's home in America. That kind of well, and, you know. and that's the thing too, right? Like China, China runs a surveillance state, and so you assume that, like, if it's a Chinese-owned company, their ability to run a surveillance state in their own country means that they have access to any company and everything it's doing there. And Scott Galloway, NYU business professor, he always likes to say on his podcast, "All China would need to do here is decide that it wants some chaos in the U.S., and they could easily just tweak the TikTok algorithm a little bit." And voila, you'd get videos about election fraud or whatever it is that they want to, you know, create chaos about that would start to show up in your feed. Well, would China actually do this? Well, Twitter just took down three China based operations that were covertly trying to influence the American midterms. According to The Washington Post, uh, those messages were amplifying controversial and polarizing topics like election rigging claims about the 2020 election and also criticism of members of the transgender community. Uh, So the answer is yes, China would do that. I don't know what's going to happen here. You have to imagine there's going to be some sort of backlash from the millions of people who are on TikTok. Sure, but uh, at the same time, it's a national security issue. You know, it's interesting you brought up that organization that many people have never heard of before, CFIUS. The uh, uh, again, it's uh, what does it stand for? The Council, the the uh, Council on Foreign Investment in the U.S. CFIUS. Um, it's funny. I first came into contact with CFIUS back when I was covering things post 9/11, and there were major concerns about certain Middle Eastern governments owning infrastructure here in the U.S. And CFIUS was going through that, saying, uh, you know, we feel queasy post 9-11 about having certain, you know, Saudi um, uh, Saudi government, other, other governments potentially owning assets here in the U.S. And so I, for a lot of folks, given the reach TikTok has, the influence it has, and its ability to, you know, to your point, to be able to manipulate folks with information, it already is rife with misinformation disinformation is when government intends to put bad information out there. So this would be more disinformation. Uh, There's a concern, you know, you'll see Gen Z, you know, uh, riding in the streets, depending on what the Chinese do with uh, TikTok. The the negotiation goes on. I know that there was a Washington Post story recently about the state of that negotiation, that there were some folks at the U.S. Justice Department who were concerned that they were giving too much away to uh, TikTok. 
Uh, ultimately, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, given the reach of it, can they come to some sort of compromise that is short of banning the app here in the U.S., uh, but that also ensures that our information stays secure and we, you know, have, I don't know, some semblance of control over that algorithm. So this story is actually a bit of good news for Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, which is desperately trying to compete with TikTok. Facebook or Meta shares actually up 2% today. And I say actually up because um, Meta shares are down about 75% in just about a year. It's been a rough one. So this has to do with... it's crazy. It has to do with this little thing called the metaverse. This is Mark Zuckerberg's pet project. He's already dumped billions of dollars into creating it and plans to spend about $250 billion more. And so far, there's nothing really to show for it. If you're wondering what exactly is the metaverse, it is a great question. And the answer is somewhat vague. According to Wired.com, it is a broad and often speculative shift in how we interact with technology. So it usually involves virtual reality or augmented reality. And Mosh, I don't think that we could underestimate just how much money we are talking about here in terms of this investment. Totally. And and by the way, when we're talking about the metaverse too, like literally, if you remember Snapchat, like filters, I mean, even on Instagram, like filters on top of your face, that's sort of metaverse right? Like where you're interacting, it's your reality, but there's some sort of computerized element associated with it. Some of the stuff that uh, Facebook, uh, Meta, uh, the parent company, they changed their name, right? Uh, is up to is like utilizing their huge investment in Oculus, these are virtual reality goggles, and like letting you have, it was funny, there was a piece last year with Gail King from CBS and Mark where they did an interview in the metaverse, but it was like them sitting in a room, but like cartoon versions of them. And so there's <laughs> there are questions about like, wait, that's what you have to show for it so far, all these billions? Um, allegedly, according to their most recent uh, financial statement, uh, they will be spending $39 billion next year, double what they spent last year. Um I was listening to the All In podcast, which is a, a great financial podcast. If anyone is into those things, it's four financial and tech experts who have great experience. They do a weekly business podcast. And uh, one of them was going through comparing the metaverse investment to other major investments through the years, huge achievements. This is, these are all inflation-adjusted numbers. So as Jill mentioned, two, you know, right now, it looks like Zuckerberg's going to spend about $250 billion to figure out the metaverse. Compare that to Apple spent $3.6 billion to develop the first iPhone, right? The first iPhone you could sell in the stores, and then you could develop over time. But there was something to show for it after $3.6 billion. The U.S. government spent $23 billion on the Manhattan Project to develop the atom bomb. Tesla, $25 billion to build their first car. Boeing, to build a 787 Dreamliner, $32 billion. Again, Meta, $250 billion. The only comparable thing is what the U.S. government spent on the Apollo space program over 12 years, several missions to the moon, $250 billion. That's what Zuckerberg is investing in the metaverse right now. That is wild when you put it that way, Mosh, um, because as we're talking about, what what are we getting for that money here? Well, Some cool avatars? I mean, and, and I could be downplaying it, but... Well, the first $40 billion's gotten you that. <laughs> The first like 30 or 40 billion. I mean, that's the issue right now. You would wear these Oculus glasses. I talked about them on a podcast a few weeks ago. I think the new ones cost somewhere between 1400 to 1500 bucks. They have something called Horizon World. That's like the, the first real metaverse they're building out right now. Right now, it only has about 200,000 monthly active users. Their goal was 500,000. So the thing is here, ultimately, you know, investors, 
and shareholders the reason why Zuckerberg has lost $87 billion of net worth and the Facebook stock is down 75% or so is they want to know what the money is going towards, right? They're like, ultimately, what are you investing it towards? When are we going to see the core product? Again, like Apple was like, they had an iPhone after $3 billion. What are you going to do after, you know, $100 billion here? I think it really points to maybe the pressure that Zuckerberg feels to pivot the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to just backtrack a bit. About a year ago, he said he wanted to really focus on the metaverse. So much so, by the way, that they changed the name of the company to Meta. And this was after Apple took that really tough stance on privacy and created an anti-tracking policy. So if you have an iPhone, you know that when you go onto a new app, it asks if the app can track you. I'm not sure if there's anyone anywhere in the world who's like, yeah, track me. I mean, (laughs) I think most people say no. Um, But that change has meant that it's a, a lot harder for Facebook and these other platforms to make money off of online advertising. So Zuckerberg has said that he sees the future of Facebook in the metaverse Again, even changing the company's name to Meta. Facebook, remember, owns Facebook, of course, Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, But one hedge fund that owns 2.5 million shares of Meta wrote a letter basically saying, quote, Meta has drifted into the land of excess. Too many people, too many ideas, too little urgency. An estimated $100 billion of investment in an unknown future is supersized and terrifying even by Silicon Valley standards. I mean, keep in mind here that we sit here in the year 2022. Facebook's almost 20 years old. I mean, it's crazy to think about, but he was developing it in his dorm room back in 02, 03, 04 um, and launching it. I mean, I remember this being on, on a college campus in 2004 and, and, and really wildly, you know, excitedly awaiting Facebook's arrival on our campus because it had just started as an Ivy League phenomenon. So to think about it, like Facebook's headed into its third decade of, exi- of existence. So, you know, he does see this need to iterate. He does see this need to develop new things. He sees this need to compete with TikTok. Uh, and so they've made this huge bet. And by the way, it could work out. When I was at a tech conference last week uh, at Laguna, the creator of the Oculus classes, Parker Lucky, who sold it to uh, Zuckerberg for $2 billion, was like, listen, the metaverse he's created so far totally sucks. But he's the one investing money where he could make it awesome. The question is, is like, how long will it take? And what will be the practical use beyond gaming, beyond some basic stuff uh, where like you and I and everyone who's listening will be like, oh, yeah, in 10 years, we're like, he was a genius for developing the metaverse. That's what he is hoping for. Okay, Mosh, let's do a little speed read. We'll start in San Francisco. This from NBC News. On Tuesday, the man accused of brutally attacking the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pled not guilty to charges of attempted murder, among others. The state prosecutors also charged the 42-year-old David DePepe with assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, residential burglary, false imprisonment, and threatening a public official. Now, during that hearing, DePepe, who will continue to be held in county jail, was wearing an orange jumpsuit. His arm was in a sling. His public defender told reporters afterward that DePepe's shoulder was dislocated when he was arrested by police on Friday. His attorney said he plans to investigate DePepe's, quote, vulnerability to misinformation as part of the defense. Yeah, Jill, I find it so interesting that these days that's a viable defense, a potentially viable defense that my... Uh, my defendant was vulnerable to misinformation. Uh, that was actually tried in a few of the January 6th cases. <laughs> and how did it go over? Uh, many of those people are in jail right now. 
So um, yeah, unsuccessful. Yeah, the, the, the judges so far have not been buying it. By the way, uh, we should update the condition of Paul Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi's 82-year-old husband. He remains hospitalized at uh, the San Francisco General Hospital. Actually, I should note it's the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital since we've been talking about Meta. The uh, Zuckerberg donated uh, a whole bunch of money to put his name on it. So Paul Pelosi is there. Uh, he had surgery for his injuries, uh, including a fractured skull. In a statement on Monday evening, Nancy Pelosi said her husband is making steady progress on what will be a long recovery process. Moshe, we always talk that our political leaders are on the older side. Nancy Pelosi's husband, again, 82. I think it's worth repeating. It is not so easy to come back from from an injury. Think about how many older people hurt their hips and and that winds up being something that that affects them for the rest of their lives. Whatever your thoughts are politically, I, I do hope he gets better. Yeah, Jill, I would think it's hard enough to recover from a fractured skull, even, you know, in your 20s or 30s. I can't even imagine how long it might take in your 80s to recover from the injuries of that attack. All right, let's go overseas from The New York Times. We are starting to get some results from the Israeli election. Benjamin Netanyahu's right wing alliance may have won a narrow lead in Israel's fifth election in less than four years, according to exit polls. So this gives him a chance of returning to power at the helm of one of the most right-wing governments in Israeli history. Three broadcasters' exit polls indicating Netanyahu's party, the Likud, finished first with 30 to 31 seats, while his wider right-wing coalition won 61 to 62 seats, enough to form a narrow majority in the 120-seat parliament. Now, if the right-wing bloc did achieve a narrow victory, it would let Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving prime minister, return to office even as he stands trial on corruption charges. So, Moshe, if we think that turnout is going to be low for the midterms next week. Could you imagine if this was our fifth election in four years? Right. We complain about our politics here in the U.S. You know, we only have two parties <laughs> to choose from. Well, what if you had more than a dozen and they all had to get together and agree to form a majority uh, in Congress, especially given the state of our politics? That's the situation in Israel right now. Just to give people a sense of the parliamentary politics there, we've been watching what's been happening in the U.K., where it's still, you know, basically a, a labor conservative world. Uh, you know, they, there are some minor uh, third parties there. In Israel, you have this constant development, splitting of parties, etc. And so what you've had now in the past four years is there were three elections starting in 2019, where nobody got a clear mandate, you have to have a majority of, of the parliament there. Uh, and so you'd have to like, eke out a coalition where your party has five seats, my party has 10 seats, this party has six seats, and you try to put it together. So they had three failures, then they had a fourth election, where the uh, coalition was able to put together uh, enough seats. And keep in mind here that a lot of the politics here revolve around one personality. That's Netanyahu, who you mentioned, who it appears as of this taping on a Tuesday night, like he's going to be making his comeback. He was prime minister for three years in the 90s. Then he was prime minister again for 12 years from 09 to 2021. People eventually... There were enough people and politicians who thought maybe while you face trial for corruption allegations, you shouldn't be prime minister. He was like, nonsense. I'm going to continue being prime minister. So he has now put the country through all these elections. So there was the fourth election uh, last year where the anti-Netanyahu coalition came together. The only thing they agreed on was they don't like him. <laughs> when it came to issues, they had nothing else. And then uh, so that fell apart, which just leads to this one. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this, but it's got to be exhausting for voters to have to go to vote literally every few months over and over again, hoping for a different result. 
By the way, Jill, we've been following one other foreign election this week. That's the election in Brazil. There was a runoff on Sunday. Lula, uh, the uh, former president who's uh, seeking to make a comeback, won. The big question we've been asking for the past few days is, will the sitting president, Bolsonaro, uh, actually follow the Constitution and hand over power? He was silent for nearly 36 hours and then came out on Tuesday. He didn't concede necessarily. He thanked his supporters. He encouraged protesters to be peaceful. He criticized the left. And then he said he would follow the Constitution. And then he walked off and his chief of staff walked up and they're like, yeah, we'll be handing over power. So uh, the big headline we've been waiting for from Brazil, would they have a January 6th style situation? It appears as of now, like those fears are gone, that he will be handing over power, despite saying for months that if he lost, it would be corrupt. So not to make this all about us here in the United States, um, I guess my big question is, does this mean that they're going to stop burning down the Amazon rainforest, please? I mean, that for me was just such a crime against this planet. Uh, we, what The Amazon's called, what, the Earth's right. lungs? That, and just the, the images of, of the rainforest being burned down. I know Lula feels differently, right? And, and feels that it's important to preserve Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of complex issues. There's major economic issues in the country, but the Amazon did come up during the election. Uh, Bolsonaro, who's been president for the last four years, has essentially allowed a lot of development and farming to take over there because he's looking at it from that economic example. Lula, who's coming in as president, uh, and uh, essentially we learned today will probably be taking over in a peaceful transition on January 1st, has said he would uh, do a better job of preserving the rainforest. So uh, we shall see uh, if he's able to fulfill those promises. Look, I wouldn't be opposed to other countries, the United States included, helping to subsidize that for, for you know, Brazil and paying a little bit to say, please don't, you know, burn this down. It's so important just for the, the health of the it's, planet. It, it's interesting. Um, That's actually something that Bolsonaro had brought up was like, you guys got to develop and cut out, cut down a whole bunch of trees. Why can't we do the same thing to develop our country? And I think you bring up a good point there, which is, does the world get together? Because the Amazon is so important to the world and the global climate and, you know, basically cut Brazil a check to not have them cut down any more trees. All right, from the Military Times and our former intern, Jonathan, who's now a reporter there, the Pentagon attributes UFO sightings to spies and airborne trash. Intelligence officials have delivered Congress a new report on unexplained aerial phenomenon, better known as UFOs, and it looks at more than 140 incidents between 2004 and 2021. Military officials telling the New York Times that most resolved UFO cases can be attributed to foreign spies or airborne trash. From NBC News, though, there is some frustration that the intelligence agencies are cherry picking data and continue a disinformation process started by the CIA in the 1950s to convince the public and scientists that UFOs were nonsense. So my favorite part of this story, by the way, is that the law, by law, Congress gets this update on Halloween every year. I'm not sure who came up with that idea, but well done. So the UFO report comes out on Halloween every year. Correct. Some things with this government are uh, sometimes beyond belief, uh, including <laughs> the fact that really all the UFOs, Jill, are either foreign spies or airborne trash. Come on. Like uh, all these videos, you know, listen, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but some of those videos I've seen from the cockpit of planes that were released in testimony recently, <laughs> those things are whizzing around in ways that like, there's no way, there's no way that like, these are things from Earth. 
Okay, Jill, let's stick with space here. This story comes to us from CBS News. Apparently, NASA has found a few asteroids that were hiding in the glare of the sun, including one that could one day hit Earth. The area between the orbits of Earth and Venus is often hidden by the sun's glare, making it notoriously challenging for astronomers to observe what may be lurking in the region. But recently, astronomers were able to get around the challenge by conducting surveys during two 10-minute windows at night. And so they essentially found three asteroids, Two are so massive, they've been described as planet killers. That is the NASA shorthand for an asteroid that is one kilometer wide or larger. And apparently one has the potential of crossing Earth's orbit at some point. Now, Jill, I want to tell folks this is not anything immediate. We shouldn't be worried that this is coming here within months, days, or weeks. Uh, But what they do is they track the trajectory because these things are constantly orbiting. So at some point, they're like, it could cross our path. We need to calculate it. The good news is, though, that NASA has developed this new DART technology. They tested it last month. We talked a lot about it. Uh, Their test of it in October was essentially launching a rocket into an asteroid. It took 10 months, traveled 7 million miles at 14,000 miles per hour, and we hit it dead on, and we're able to actually move the asteroid. So that does give us all hope that NASA does have the technology should one of these asteroids that was discovered at some point uh, intend to make its way towards Earth. Bruce Willis, Armageddon, got it. That's all I need to know. Exactly. (laughs) All right, from CNN, Powerball jackpot climbs to $1.2 billion after Halloween drawing haunts players with no winner yet again okay there are so many halloween puns in this write-up i i'm just gonna read it i'm both cringing and loving it at the same time (laughs) um after no lucky trick-or-treater scored monday night's billion dollar powerball jackpot players will have to vie for the prize yet again wednesday this time for a whopping 1.2 billion the jackpot is the second largest prize in powerball's 30-year history lottery participants have been haunted for 38 drawings in a row with no jackpot winner. All I thought when I saw that story is we're really haunted here. That's uh, the Powerball and having no winner is really haunting people. CNN was having a little too much fun with that write up, whoever was writing that. Um, Jill, have you been buying tickets? I have not. Have you? I have not. I always like, you know, like, hey, I should throw 20 bucks at becoming a billionaire. There was an interesting lotto story I noted last week, by the way, Jill, that in the New York State lottery, which like the drawing is not anywhere near a billion dollars. Somehow it was like a one in several billion shot, but they drew the same five numbers for the midday drawing as the evening drawing, which is what? (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's that's insane. Yeah, and so you know, you never know. Maybe you should play those numbers. I have no idea, but I I feel like I need to get out there um, today and, and buy a ticket. You know, it'd be nice to be a billionaire. All right, let's end it there. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Please make sure to follow the show or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode. A reminder, today is a special day. We'll have an extra interview out later today, a bonus edition with CNBC's Julia Borston. She's out with a new book, When Women Lead, really breaking down the data of women CEOs and the meaningful difference they bring to companies. It's an incredible conversation. You'll get a lot out of it. So subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss that episode later today. Reminder to also review us in the App Store. It helps, every review helps us continue to grow the show. You can also get the Mo News newsletter into your inbox over at monews.bulletin.com. You can head over there to sign up. And if you don't follow us by now on Instagram, where it all started, at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H, for 24-7 news coverage. We'll see everyone back here tomorrow.